Welcome to Size and Whispers, a new two podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion cultural historian. My guest this week is the art collector, muse, journalist, and editor Joan Agajanian Quinn. In September, I visited LA and had the wonderful opportunity to interview Joan during a crazy heat wave. As Joan's house has no air conditioning, we met at the home of one of her daughters, covered on every surface with artwork collected by the family. Perhaps more than any other resident, Joan Quinn has single-handedly contributed to Los Angeles becoming an art capital. Some artists from her circle might have more global renown, but Joan's actions as a collector and promoter of art and artists have helped form and amplify the LA art scene. Her passion and collecting zeal made her a muse for artists. What started as some artist friends painting and sculpting her portrait in the 70s has now grown into a collection of over 300 portraits of Joan by everyone from Helmut Newton to Jean-Michel Basquiat to Richard Bernstein, who was the subject of my last episode. As you'll hear, Joan talks about growing up in Los Angeles, the daughter of a prominent Armenian-American race car promoter. We discuss her entree into the art world through our childhood and college friends, and how she began purchasing their works as a way of supporting them. Following her marriage to the lawyer Jack Quinn in 1961, this board expanded. Jack provided essential law and contract advice to artists and dealers, while Joan began introducing their artists and lawyer friends to stimulate sales of artworks. We discuss all of this and their legendary parties. At Andy Warhol's behest, in the late 70s, she became the West Coast editor of Interview Magazine. In 1981, she became a member of the California Arts Council. At the same time, Joan also began to explore curating. Among the exhibitions she worked on were ones on Zandra Rhodes and Issey Miyake. In addition to creating most of her wardrobe, these designers were her friends. Meeting Rhodes in the early 70s alerted Joan to a world of creative dressing, a way of using clothes to express her individuality. We speak extensively about fashion and her relationship with fashion designers, as well as her passion for collecting jewelry. In the mid-1980s, Joan started a public access show. Over the decades, she has hosted West Coasting, Joan Quinn ETC, The Joan Quinn Profiles, and Beverly Hills View, which continued to air until the beginning of the pandemic. For the next half hour, Joan will bring you inside news and views on society, art, film, and the exhilarating worlds of these multifaceted people. Here is Joan Quinn. Luckily for us, many of these interviews are available on her YouTube page, Joan Quinn Profiles. I will put a link in the show notes. It is a veritable treasure trove for researchers and anyone interested in the arts of the last 35 years. Please go check it out. I'm genuinely surprised that each interview doesn't have many more views, as they are an incredible resource. Now in her 80s, Joan is still actively engaging with artists and the art world. Part of her collection was featured at an exhibition at the Bakersfield Museum of Art earlier this year. Called On the Edge, Los Angeles Art, 1970s to 1990s, from the Joan and Jack Quinn Family Collection, and put on with the assistance from The Wonderful Company. It featured works from many of Joan's artist friends, Robert Maplethorpe, Jean-Michel Basquiat, David Hockney, Ed Ruscha, Zandra Rhodes, Larry Bell, Frank Gehry, Ed Moses, Hamid Newton, Billy Ed Bankston, Antonio Lopez. You get the idea. With sponsorship from the JMH Foundation, the exhibition is now on view at the Armenian Museum of America in Watertown, Massachusetts, just outside Boston, where it has been extended until January 31st, 2023. If you are nearby, go see it. Joan is wonderful, warm, and has a great memory for stories of the artistic world she inhabited. If you're interested in art, fashion, or Los Angeles history, I think you'll really love this conversation. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to the podcast. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me, especially on like the hottest days of the year. Who knew it was going to be this hot? Yeah. 
I guess I usually like to start sort of about, you know, asking people about their childhood and upbringing and their background. My name is Joan Agajanian Quinn. I was born in Long Beach, raised uh, some, somewhat in San Pedro and the Long Beach area. And then we came to Los Angeles where my parents moved, obviously. And we lived in View Park. My grandparents moved that way. They had a big house in San Pedro where we were children. I think my parents got married in the basement of their big house, which was overlooking the bay. And I was thinking about it the other day because I was reading the, um, they thought we were crazy about Dennis Hopper. Mm -hmm. And Marin talks about going back to the house where they lived as a child and she thought it was so big. And I thought, the house that we were living in, in in San Pedro was huge too. And then when I went back to see it, it wasn't as big as I thought it was. So as children, you think of different things. I went to elementary school in Los Angeles. I went to Audubon Junior High School. Then I went to Westlake School for Girls, USC. And I taught uh, when I came out of USC. I taught school. I was a uh, training teacher, which is what the equivalent of sending interns to your class Mm -hmm. from the university to learn um, how to teach, how to do your room. My rooms were always very artistic. Um, I didn't grow up around a lot of art. I know that's one of the things that you wanted to uh, know about. No art, basically sports people. Mm -hmm. My father was a race car owner and promoted races at Gardena, and my mother was a housewife. She did go to cosmetology school, so she was very artistic. She, she played the violin in high school. That was the most of my art background. I had very little art background. Were you attracted to it? Were you drawn to it? I always think that I had kind of a feeling for the arts because of... Um, I don't know. I don't know. I guess the way I dressed, the colors that you like. I always noticed nature around me. I always made my children look at the trees that were changing in the seasons. We don't have many seasons changing. So when we had a tree that would change, we were like, look, the leaves are falling. But in that respect. How did it become a part of your life, Art? I think one of my friends... um, was an artist and we were both working at Desmond's um, when we were in high school. I was just graduating from high school and I had a job at Desmond's which was one of the old department stores in Los Angeles. It was the branch at Stalker and Crenshaw and also working there was a person named Billy L. Bankston who is now a famous artist. He was working in the department downstairs. It was the display department. So he would help Dale Green, who was the display guy, uh, do the windows. So Billy would have to come to my little area where I was selling costume jewelry and use that to, to put on the mannequins either in the window or in the store. They had mannequins all through the store at that time. Was he already doing his art separately? I don't know what he was doing, but there he was in the art department. And, you know, I think Rauschenberg and Warhol also worked at Tiffany's at one time, remember, when they were just starting out. So it's it kind of, I think, I see the parallel there with Billy. I, I went on 
to private school. Dora went to Dorsey High School. And then we all kind of met back at USC. And she was in the art department at SC. And, and I was taking journalism and education. And Dora worked as a potter. Also in that department was Kenny Price. And I used to see Kenny Price on University Avenue, just kind of like moseying along. I knew who he was from the art department. Also, there was an artist, a New York artist now, David Novros, who was there. And they used to have student art sales. So I started just buying pieces of art there. I bought a Kenny Price piece of pottery that when I was honored to speak at his memorial at LACMA, I presented that piece to the family. They had never seen it because they didn't even know Kenny when he was in college. So his widow um, was thrilled to get it. It was very exciting actually to have a piece that he had made and that I had bought for probably three or four dollars, you know, um, and, and hand it to them during that ceremony. That's so wonderful. I know, it was so nice. So Happy, happy Price was his wife. And she had their two daughters and Jackson, their son, and they came on stage and took it and went back and sat. Oh, I love that. Um, I mean, that's like the the power of having, I guess, been involved in the you know the art world and known these artists from the very beginning, right? For so long, I think that's right because it adds the layers. There's layers added. It seems like at SC, Kenny was living with Billy L. They were rooming together. And so then I got to, to know Billy, and my father was promoting races, and Billy was a motorcycle guy. And it just seems like we all kind of just got together. I don't know how it started, how it didn't start. I got married. Billy became really good friends of ours and used to go to the races together. Sometimes he would race. Sometimes we'd just sit in the press box, and, you know, the artists would come with us. Basically, Kenny and Happy because they were so close to Billy at the time. And so that's how sort of how you started, you collecting just like bit by bit at these like little sales. And did you- I started, actually, that's a very good way to put it. I think I did just start that. But at SC, I was friends with this other person whose name was Larry Urudia. He was also in the art department and he was working at Lytton Savings on Crescent Heights and Sunset, which they just tore down. It was a Googie architecture building. And it was so sad to see it go, and they're putting a big complex in there. But at the bottom of Lytton Savings, Bart Lytton was a big art collector, and he had a gallery down there. And so Larry was working for Josine Sterles, who was the director of that gallery, and I was privy to that from SC. I would come by and see that. Also during that time, I met this group of artists who lived in, well, I guess it was South Central at that point, when I would go to school and then also into work, I would stop at the studio of Daniel LaRue Johnson, who is one of the top black artists known right now. He passed away a few years ago. But I would stop at his studio, which was in a garage on Gramercy or Hobart down that way. And he had other artist friends would come over and it would either be in the morning, you know, on the way to school or on the way back in the afternoon. And we'd just kind of chat and see his work. And mm -hmm. I was drawn to those kind of people. 
it must have been wonderful to feel like be in the sort of center of this really sort of creative. But but you didn't feel like you were in the center yeah. of it. I mean, I didn't feel like I was in the center of it. I just felt like those were my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, we had other friends. We went to you know fraternity parties and and things like that. In fact, uh, at one of the parties we went to, I was coming home with. Um, my aunt, who was younger than I was, and we were living on on Kenway at the time, which was in View Park, and somebody followed us home from the drive-in. We were at the drive-in, we had stopped after one of the parties at the drive-in, that's when they used to have drive-ins, and it was called Martha's Drive-In at Vernon and Crenshaw. And this car followed us home. My mother had just finished building her house, which was a Southern colonial house with big white pillars, very distinctive. And this car pulled up and, you know, do you, got, do you girls wanna, uh, you know, come and talk to us? And we went, no, we don't, we ran in the house. And then a few years later, when I was working at the, art, at the law school, um, I met Jack Quinn and I asked if he wanted to come up for dinner. And he said, I can't come up on Friday. I'm Catholic and I can't eat steak. And so I said, okay, why don't you wait until 1.05, 12.05. Why don't you wait until 12.05 and uh, come up? So he said, good deal, okay. And he came up and he saw the pillars and he saw the whole thing. This is several years later. And he said, I've been here before. And he was the one who followed us <laughs> up from the drive-in. <laughs> So it was meant to be. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, we were married very long. Many, many years. 60 years. 50, over 50 years. Amazing. Not many people get there. <laughs> no, we're so, we were very happy. We had a very good marriage. And he was a lawyer, right? He was a lawyer, and those kind of people were not in his realm. But he absolutely bonded with Billy and Kenny and Joe Good and... The whole group of people that we started meeting when we were going to the races. And they adored Jack. I brought them into our life, but they adored Jack. <laughs> and so he, he helped them in a lot of ways. He helped them with their contracts. He helped them when they couldn't pay their rent. He helped them when they needed to pay a ticket. When, when any kind of little thing, they had an artistic kind of mentality. And they would just call on Jack, and it was his pleasure to do it. So that's how we came pretty much into that situation. And once you got married, did you continue to work in the law school, or when did you sort of transition to work? When I got married, I was teaching school by that time. I was still working at the law school in the evenings, a few hours, because my school was close by to SC. Mm -hmm. So where I was teaching, I would come over and, and work. So I continued to know the professors and... And uh, I had a pretty good position. I was assistant registrar. So I got, everyone liked me because I used to see the grades after, after finals. So, and I'm saying all the boys because there were like maybe three girls in the law school at that time. A different world. Totally, and that's how the art world was too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say we were friends with the guys because there were no girls. They didn't accept girls anyway. It was like girls. 
you know, everyone always talks about how at the time that, you know, New York was preeminent in the art world and that L.A. was sort of behind, you know, wasn't considered anything. I think that's right. I think you're right, and I think it was. And one of the reasons I think Jack always said was that we didn't have a magazine. We didn't have an art magazine. We didn't have an art newspaper where all the publications were coming out of New York and Europe Mm-hmm. And they thought they were the center of the world. And we and people from here would go to New York to buy art. Nobody would buy art here. That was like if you were in the higher echelon, you would go to New York. And even when Pace came out or Gagosian came out, in the beginning, none of the collectors here bought art from them because it just was like not the cachet. It wasn't like buying from the... Uh, top dealers, even when they were here. Mm-hmm. It was like, I bought that in New York. When did that start to change? Oh, I think it took a long time. Yeah. It took a long time because you'll find a lot of those collectors who were buying in New York, not many of them bought California artists. Yeah. I know later on you've written and curated. When did that sort of shift in your career happen? I think when we got married, we started doing things together. I didn't bring very much to the marriage. I mean, I had a few pieces by Dora Delarios, and I had those little things from Kenny, and things that really didn't seem to mean very much. They weren't very important. And Jack and I, I remember going to a sale that Sister Mary Carita was having at Immaculate Heart, and we bought a couple of her prints, and we met her. And that was kind of like clicked. You know the artist, you buy, a, you buy something of theirs. My father used to go to this event at the Coconut Grove. The LA Times used to put it on. It was a sports event and they would give awards. It was like the Academy Awards of Sports. And there was an art gallery there. And we thought that was, Jack and I used to go as young marrieds and we thought, oh wow, that's an art gallery. We should really get to know them. And we bought a piece from there, which is, as I remember, really beautiful. It was a green and it was a landscape and it was by Ruth Osgood. Osgood. No one's ever heard of her. She lived down in Temecula. We visited her one time because we thought, we, we were always of the idea that you should know the artist. You should know what you're buying. So we visited her in Temecula one time, and she was very charming and took us through her avocado grove and showed us the pictures that she had painted. And we had that. We were really proud of that. We used to, like, we know Ruth. We would show that off. And then we, we were very into fashion or into people, not so much fashion, but knowing about clothes, caring about the way we looked. And Jack was a big client, let's say, of Mr. Guy, who was in the Rancho Market across from Farmer's Market on 3rd Street. And then Mr. Guy wanted to move to Beverly Hills. And Jack was practicing then, and he helped him negotiate the contract with the city of Beverly Hills. And he was right on the corner of Rodeo, right in the center, was right by the Luau. And Jack negotiated this parking spaces for Mr. Guy. And I remember... When, when he had this area, I told the artist, I think we should put your art in the window. And they went like, are you kidding? In the window of a haberdashery on Rodale? I mean, that's so not what an artist would do. 
And, you know, now it's like the big thing, but they would not allow me to use their art or to tell Mr. Guy, Guy Greengard, to do that. Guy was very friendly with some people in Mexico City, and we went to Mexico City with him on several occasions, and we started buying Mexican art. So we were just into, we weren't focused. So we bought a lot of the Nueva Presencia. We saw the murals. We were very inspired by what was going on. And to this day, we have Jose Cuevas. We've never sold anything. So today we still have the Cuevas and the Corsas, and um, we bought some small little Sequeiras wood blocks. And um, it, it was just a wonderful time because there was a movement of art going on in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And we felt like we were, we knew those artists and we were part of that movement. And I think that transferred over to what we were doing in LA. Did you feel like you ended up helping to bring together a movement? Or no, I don't think we, I don't think it sounded like a movement at all to us. It was just that these artists needed a path to take. Mm -hmm. and, and we were pretty good about making a path for them. And we would have dinners at our house. We would invite them out to dinner. If they had an art show, we would do the dinner afterwards. Just things like that, that is, those things are very important to artists. It's very difficult. And I, I always remember Jack saying, you know, it's like an artist goes into the boxing ring and he's in there alone and there's no one with him. And he's in his studio alone painting or sculpting, or whatever he's doing, creating, and you're all alone. So you, you need that recognition. And I think that um, we, were, we were very helpful in giving them this recognition because we would make people from the outside come in and appreciate what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So the outsiders, even if they didn't know what it was, <laughs> had to appreciate it because we were saying this is really good stuff. Yeah, because you were kind of straddling all these different worlds. Exactly. Um, I mean, we were doing different things than they were doing. Yeah, that's wonderful. It sounds like it was a lot of fun. It well. was. We had a really great time. <laughs> we really did. Travel was easy. Those groups of people were relaxed. It wasn't anything formal. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of fun. I just went through some like sort of newspaper archive just to do some sort of period research, just to see... And it was all like, you know, mentioning like you having this dinner party here and like this, you know, this, this dinner party for these people. And it sounds like your parties were amazing. I mean, and our parties turned out to be pretty great when we moved into Alta Drive, where we live now. And it was a house that was built by Oliver Hardy. And a few years ago, we thought it was Oliver Hardy and, and uh, Mac David. And then somebody knocked on our door not long maybe a couple of years ago and said my mother lived in this house and we went oh that's nice and she showed me pictures of the backyard and pictures of the house and her mother was the daughter of ed sullivan so then we found out that ed sullivan moved into that house after oliver hardy left and then mac david who's the brother of the famous hell david and burt backrack duo lived in the house and then when his daughter got married we moved in with our two babies and we've been there ever since Amazing. so it's great it's like a house that's not only historic but family-wise a really lovely place and this young girl 
from Ed Sullivan, the granddaughter, great-granddaughter, I guess, of Ed Sullivan, said, my mother was the happiest in this house, she said. And she was like a young girl at that time. So that was nice. So when we first moved in, we started having parties. We have up the patio is pretty big, and we would have a mix of artists and judges and lawyers and friends. So we did a lot of housewarming parties, and, and pretty soon they just began to be just parties. And we had a cousin, I have a cousin who was doing the catering. In fact, it was from the Kardashian side of my family. So they were great caterers, and I remember John Altoon coming to one of the dinners and spending most of the time in the kitchen because he hadn't seen Armenian food like that cooked, and he was so excited to be there. That was pretty interesting. You know, you have an artist there, and he's, like, intrigued with the food. And then they had great conversations. My cousins were in the kitchen, and we would have maybe 30, 40 people in the yard. And, and as well as also having, like, smaller, intimate dinners. We would right? have small, intimate dinners, like maybe 16 at the, in the dining room. And one of the things I always thought was very important was making sure that the table looked fantastic. So we always had colorful cloths or brocade, and I used to have different kinds of flowers, always down the middle, always low, either in Chinese porcelains or in individual crystal vases that were on different heights, different kinds of flowers, because that was very, very important, and also to be able to see across and talk to your... We did that also in the garden, but not as beautifully as you could do on a long table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds gorgeous. I found one LA Times article that was like interviewing you, I mean, sometime in the 70s about your dinner party, and then there were a couple of Armenian recipes. Oh, my mother. Were were they my recipes too? They probably were. Yeah, I think they were, so... It sounded fun. (laughs) It was fun, and I used to cook. I don't cook anymore. (laughs) Teach everyone else how to do it. Mm -hmm. Every all the artists would introduce you. Then the LA artists would introduce you to actually. That's right. LA artists. That's exactly. And then how I know you've met artists from other places. Did it just happen when they came here, or how did it sort of expand your actually? Actually, that's exactly right. Because Billy also was famous for cooking and doing dinner parties at his house. And he would have people over, like we met Larry Bell with, with, we met everybody with Billy. Billy is our catalyst. And Billy is my longest and oldest friend because I knew him when I was 16 and we talk about it now. Um, He was a great cook and he did fabulous dinners. He did birthday parties for me. He did, his famous thing was the Oscar party. We would always have a ballot and he'd have a piece of art I have the box that was the stuffing the ballots into the box that he had painted. So it's like a piece of sculpture at my house. Wow. So that was always fun. He always had great parties. So they were showing, like Billy was showing at Pace, I think, Laddie Dill. We met Laddie and Chuck through Billy. And Laddie had a show on the East Coast. And they would meet artists there and... The artists would come to visit them here, and I think that's just how we met, back and forth. I met Andy in New York at a party, and then he came here to to visit someone who had commissioned him to do a series of prints, 
and we started talking about jewelry because we both were collecting jewelry at the time. And he said, do you want to be my West Coast editor? Well, Peter Lester was the West Coast editor of Interview at that time, and he was leaving. And of course, Andy knew that I had all these connections because he loved art, he loved artists, and he knew that I knew all these artists. So I think that was pretty smart on his part because then we started interviewing the artists here. We started getting photographers here because their forte was photography. And Andy loved movie stars. So there was a connection, like Ruscha was going out with Samantha Egger, Billy was going out with Tony Basil. We had this connection to um, celebrities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were all very artsy people, which was great. But they and they went with artists. But it was that celebrity. And so your job was sort of to set up the interviews and photo shoots. Oh, for and, yes, yeah. yes, for interview. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would coordinate all of that, which was pretty cool. I loved it, and it was easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just a continuation of your life already. Exactly. It was very easy. And everything I've done like that, it's been easy because I've been inclusive. I include people and I try to connect people. And I think those connections help. They help each other. And they see that, oh, look, I just met somebody new. I'm going to do, I'm going to go do an interview or I'm going to do a photo shoot or um some fashion designer. We're going to feature Michelle Lamy, mm -hmm. who was just a young designer here at one time. And is that sort of the same thing that you were trying to do with your public access shows? I actually started the public access because Andy said, you've got to start doing something. And I was like, no, no, no. And, and he said, yes, you've got to start doing that. So that's when I started. I actually started and I noticed that you had asked the question about West Coasting. That was like the very, very first thing. And I hope you never saw any of those. Those were pretty embarrassing. You've got a couple up on your YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Just to warn you. <laughs> really awful. Because I was doing it with someone else. I had no control. Somebody was producing it. It was a very good learning experience. Because it's difficult to go in front of a camera and to do something like that. Especially when you're not trained. And then... I started thinking, well, maybe I am trained. I'm a teacher. I stand in front of 30 kids, mm -hmm. and I have to tell them what to do and how to do it. I started doing my own show, <laughs> and then I had more control. <laughs> and, of course, I knew all those people, so it was pretty easy to have a guest, but also to have a guest that you could promote. Mm -hmm. And that was the whole thing that was our feeling, was to educate and to promote these artists to educate the community mm -hmm. while we're promoting these artists. I think you did a great job at them. I hope so. I think, you know, they had to have talent, and they had talent, and I think that was it. When you saw an artist's work, what, what, what were some things that you were looking for that attracted you, you know? We were always invited into the studios before when an artist was going to have a show, mm -hmm. so that if we wanted to buy something, we could. And I don't know, it just seemed like Jack and I had had a good eye. I don't know what we looked for. It was something that spoke to us, was the color, or was the combination. Because many times an artist would say, no, I'm not going to sell that piece. I'm holding that back. And then we'd say, no, no, we have to have it. We really love it. And they go like, if you promise not to sell it. 
and we haven't. I mean, so many of the pieces in our house are on the wall where the artist brought it and put it. And there's like conversations on our walls about like Billy would put a piece here and Ruscha would come in and put another piece there. And they're friends and they would speak to each other and they were speaking to each other on the wall. And Laddie would put a neon up and Chuck's sticks would go right above it and they'd like shared a studio space together in downtown Los Angeles for years. So it's, it's very personal. It's personal and it's friendly and it's exciting. It's still exciting to see those things on the wall and remember when someone came in and put it up. Did you and Jack ever disagree? Maybe once yeah. in a while, not much, but um, we disagreed on very few things because I would either give in or he would give in. <laughs> and it was always right because no matter what you got, it was going to be good, mm-hmm. I think, because I think these artists were of that quality. History has proven that. I know. I mean, Ed Moses was a very close friend and he did little different scenarios of painting. And you had to really know his work to know that this was, he was doing this earlier, he was doing this later. And all of his work is so exciting. It's great. I'm sure your home, I mean, I saw a couple of pictures online of your home and I'm, it must be really, well, look at this. I know this is also. This is like baby Quinn. <laughs> I, yeah, just even going, walking to the bathroom, I was like, ooh, there's an Alan Jones and everything, you know, I mean, amazing. And I, see, this is a Moses and I absolutely mm-hmm. adore that. But you wouldn't pick it out as a Moses, probably. I don't know what you would pick it, but I love it. And then this is Billy mm-hmm. with the centerpiece with the uh, Dracula, yeah. he calls it, the centerpiece. And, you know, that's it. That's it. This David Hockney, bigger, Amazing. what did he call it? Bigger than, big, what does he call that? A bigger story. Yeah, like a bigger splash, yeah. How did they, how did the portrait start? When I was 16 and graduating from Westlake, my mother had my portrait done. But in the old days before that, they used to take, families used to take their kids to the local photography studio. And there was one studio called Austin Studios. And when I was three years old, my mother took me and had my picture taken, which is so adorable. And then we just started doing that over the years. It's like now the kids go to school and they take a picture of them at school. Not the same. Mm-hmm. And then somebody used to come around with a pony and then we, they take your picture on the pony outside your house. It was a, a document of the times. So you would have that as a document of the times. So I, I don't know. I think Andy started me on the portraits. Another one, Andy was a great influence on me. He, he um, and I, because of the jewelry collecting, like brought each other up to a certain level. He was a sponge and he would listen to everything that I would say and take it all in. But he was also helpful in helping me develop what I was doing. And he said, you gotta, you know, start having your portrait done or something like that. And that was just like with the TV show. I wasn't gonna do anything like that. It was when we were at SC, Dora Delarios married someone at the architecture school named Bernard Judge, and she was still working. She had a studio by then on Venice Boulevard. They were living in the um, Schindler House on Kings Road, 
and we used to go there for dinner all the time. We used to be at that Schindler house, which is so great. And now it's called the Mac, M-A-K, mm-hmm. and it's 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 been restored, and they have a lot of programs there. It's so great. So, but we were actually having dinner and being there all the time. So Dora did a portrait of Jack and me, king and queen, and I think that was like the beginning. That that started it. Uh, I think. Bob Graham saw it, he did my face, and then somebody else saw that, another artist saw it, Billy saw it, and he did me, but he has Jack's little eyes sticking up over it. So it just kind of grew, it was very organic at that time. And then Larry Bell did a whole show of 24 portraits of all Joan, which was pretty cool, they were great. So it just was organic in a way. Somebody saw something and they wanted to do it, then somebody else wanted to do it. And then pretty soon it started being like, oh, we've got to get into that (laughs) collection. (laughs) Which was interesting too, because it opened my eyes to other people. Do you have any favorites? You can't have any favorites, can you? I would think it would be very hard, yeah. I don't think you have, I mean, I loved when Helmut Newton came over, and I love the session with Maplethorpe, and you know, you can't start talking about those things because there's no end. Mm -hmm. George Harrell, the great George Harrell, Ted Allen, who was on the same level with George Harrell, but never got known the same way. Each of those were like a a separate time in your life where you'll always remember what that was, and you have the photograph to prove it. It's very lucky. I know, I know. I I feel grateful. I'm grateful. Because not only is it like, you know, most people don't even have that anymore because we just take pictures on our phones and then they're just, you lose the the memory card, you know, the... the But that's absolutely right. And that's why I stopped. I documented every minute of the 60s and the 70s with an Instamatic. That's where Andy said, get a better camera. Mm. And I went like, no, I love my Instamatic. And he took a picture of me with my Instamatic, which is part of the the art collection. David Hockney went like, I hate that little Instamatic. Get something better. You know, if you're going to shoot all these pictures. But I just kept taking them, and I'd have them developed at the neighborhood drugstore. Mm -hmm. And I'd have two or three copies made of each one, and I'd send everyone their copy. It was kind of like... Facebook, I guess. Do you have a huge archive of photos and negatives? I used to keep them in in, uh, moving boxes. Laddie was asking me the other day, do you still have those boxes? And I said, yes, yes, I do. And and he said, are they still in the envelopes? Because he used to see me bring the envelope out and put the date on it and, and just put it in the box. So a lot of those artists have photographs that I've sent them. Uh, Billy Al's girlfriend, Penny Little, made albums of them. <laughs> so, so perfect. Because I didn't do that. I would just keep them, send them out. So I have a big archive. And then when, just as you mentioned, as soon as the phones came out, I just stopped. Mm-hmm. I just lost all my interest because it wasn't me documenting anymore. Documentation from that point of view was over. Sad. I'm... I know, it is sad in a way, isn't it? Except that maybe we have more, maybe there's more on the market now. I mean, I think it became, you know, at least what I've seen, 
because I, I studied photography undergrad, and at that time we were still doing film. Were you actually developing your mm-hmm. Yeah, see, that nobody does that. I know. <laughs> my old department, I mean, my old department teaches black and white as like a special process. And we did color process. We did our color processing and our color, you know, printing and everything as well. And they got rid of the machines for color printing. And But it's... It's it's sad to me because I think in a way these are so ephemeral because unless you back everything up and make sure the files are backed up. Well, that's true too. Unlike you having these boxes full of prints. Negatives. Negatives and prints. Yeah. Negatives. I don't know. I have a lot of videotapes too. (laughs) Are are the videotapes from the show? other from the show. Yeah. And those were... I started putting those on disc, thank goodness, early on when disc first started. And you could still stick it in your computer. Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you have a huge archive of all of I have a huge things. archive of everything. Everything, I mean, everything you- dear Laura. I have a large archive. I'm, clothes, I'm, even clothes. I know, it's gonna, I mean, I'm going to get to the clothes. But I'm assuming that you also have like... Do you, did you also keep, you know, one of your artist friends was having a show, did you keep like the, the ephemera, the various papers, the sort of oh, you the invites the, and things like that? Actually, I have boxes of invites that nobody even knows I have. They're out in a back room. And then I started throwing those away too. Why did I start throwing those away? Because I just thought everybody had them at that time. Mm-hmm. I think if I go through those, those individual invitations, how great are those? I'm sure they're beautiful. I mean, first of all, they're beautiful, but they're also pieces of history. I know. Oh, that's a really good thing to give to the archives. Didn't think about that. Yeah. Where are your archives going? I don't have a place to go, but but, um, my daughter's on the board at the Archives of American Art, Mm -hmm. and they do such fantastic work. They're really great. First of all, you mentioned collecting jewelry, and what kind of jewelry did you collect? I collected Cartier watches, Seaman Shep's jewelry, and Schlumberger. I mean, you can't really get better we than Schlumberger. We had a point when Andy and I used to talk about this, and you would always buy something that was signed because that added equality and it added uh, cachet to what you were getting. So in the 40s, there, were a lot, there was a lot of Cartier, Van Cleef. So we have some 40s jewelry like that. But basically, you know, it's all in the bank and you can't, no way to use it, do it anymore. Mm-hmm. We loaned some to the Met at one time. The Met had a show and the Museum of Art and Design had a show of Seaman Sheps. We loaned to that. But it's all, you know, it's all put away. And it also has to go, I think, because of the beauty and the design element, I think those pieces have to go to museum collections. Did you wear those things? It was a different... It was a different time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you were wearing... I have a picture of Helmut Newton did of my arm with like 12 watches on it. Or I was used to wear like three or four brooches. Like if you wear one, why can't you wear three or four? And people used to think I was so ostentatious, but it was like a part of design mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. And they weren't big things. They're not big diamond pieces. They're not diamonds and rubies they're like small designs they're they're elegant pieces of uh, craftsmanship that an individual has designed 
I mean, it's sort of this, it's just a continuation of your interest in... <clears throat> I think it's all part of the art. It yeah. was just because it was so artistic. And Simon Sheps was like the master of beautiful colors, but his wares and the goods that he put into those pieces were not, wasn't very good quality. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to find good quality stones in any of those early Seaman Sheps pieces. And yet they were so dynamic. They were like Hollywood pieces. <laughs> The stars love to wear those Hollywood pieces. I mean, I know that you are good friends with Sandra (coughs) Rose, but even before that, I was reading something about you, like hosting Chester Weinberg and all of these other people. Chester! Oh my gosh, I love Chester. I forgot about Chester Weinberg. Yes, he came out a lot from New York. Mm -hmm. And I used to wear his clothes... And, and I think he was, and Gus Dussel, mm-hmm. who was also during that period, I was very close to Gus too, and I and would go to his studio, which was on Melrose in La Cienega. And it was always filled with Armenian women. And they were all speaking Armenian all the time because they were like very, very good tailors. Mm-hmm. And they used to do all of his handwork. And I have a, a nice collection of his clothes, beautiful ball gowns. Wow. Really beautiful. He was a great designer. But Chester was fabulous for daytime clothes. Really great. And then the Japanese designers came into my realm and um, Jurgen Lail and Issey Miyake and were the two that I was the closest with. Mm-hmm. Junko Shimada, very close. She was a great friend of Emmanuel Kahn in Paris. We were very close to Emmanuel Kahn. Because when we first went to London, we met Tony Donaldson, and Tony Donaldson was doing the labels for Emmanuel's clothes, and she had. And we we would stay with Emmanuel in Paris, in um, Garche, in this beautiful Art Deco house, and she had a lot of Tony Donaldson sculptures there, so we became very friendly with her. Her daughter is now uh, designing. Atlantique Escoli. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, that's, that's another artistic thing to me is fantastic. I think the designers were superstars. <laughs> Zandra, yeah. what a superstar, Zandra Rhodes. I mean, her work is incredible. And I know you were good friends with her. For 50 years. How did you guys meet? We met in London when, on that first trip that we went to. I, uh, Bob Graham was living there, and Billy sent us to see Bob. And Bob knew Tony Donaldson, and Tony Donaldson took us to Porchester Road, and we went up this long stairway, and Zandra was up there working away. And uh, it was pretty exciting. I left my camera there, so she found me the next day, and that really bonded us. It was my Instamatic, may I add. <laughs> so that's how we became really close. We were, we were um, very close with Alan Jones because he had twin daughters, the same as our twin daughters, the same age. And so those girls got to spend a lot of time together. Emmanuel Kahn's daughter is the same age as my daughters. So Jennifer and Amanda had this great childhood of all these artistic people that they got to be around. So you just brought your daughters around everything you know, it wasn't it was all one you know your life it wasn't separated no no it was all we were all together all the time 
It was like one big family. So if we were at, at Emmanuel's house in Garsh, we were all there together, staying there. Or at Alan Jones's house. We traded houses with Alan one year, and we stayed at Alan's house in London. So they had a lovely upbringing, too. <laughs> As someone who's always admired all those artists. You know. And it's nice that people your age have that interest in those people. I find that really refreshing. And, I th- and I'm seeing it more and more. Generation X? Now, what are we? What do we call you? Well, I'm a millennial, I guess. A millennial. Whatever. Whatever <laughs> that whole thing is, mm-hmm. there's, they're looking at legacy, and they're looking back into those, those archives, which I find refreshing. When did you start? I know you curated a couple shows, you know, fashion shows. How did you get into doing that? I was very friendly with Al Nodell at Otis Art Institute, mm-hmm. and he was the head of the gallery there. And I started, I helped him get a couple of artists work there. And then we talked about designers being artists. I said, you know, I have some Zondra Rhodes. I hang them in my, in my room. I don't put them in the closet. They're like a piece of art hanging on, on the wall. And he said, well, do you want to start doing something like that? So I did a couple of art shows. I did artists who painted celebrities, which was a big hit because everyone wanted to see a celebrity. So I did this show with Rene Boucher, and I can't tell you where I borrowed all those drawings. They were so beautiful, and no one had ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. And so that was another show I did. I did a couple of art shows, and then I talked to Elle Nodell, and we talked about fashion. And then that's when we did Zonda Rhodes, because he knew that I was a great friend of Zondra's. And then I wanted to do Issei. Mm-hmm. And Issei was very excited. We were, had been to Tokyo. In fact, we went to Tokyo with Mr. Guy, too, who was buying Japanese shirts at the time because we knew the Japanese designers. So we introduced uh, Guy to those designers, and he started selling them on Rodeo at his shop. Issei was very excited about doing it, but then... They started thinking about it because they had never thought about doing a museum show. And they said, can we do it in Tokyo first? You know, what could I say? I said, oh, of course, that'll be great. And they made models. They made mannequins out of black rubber. And they had this warehouse and they did this show in Tokyo. And then I said, okay, we're going to take it to Otis, you know. <laughs> it was a pretty big deal there. And then we're taking it to Otis, which is a small school gallery in MacArthur Park at that time. It hadn't even merged with Parsons yet. We said, okay, we'll bring it to Otis now. And then Henry Hopkins in San Francisco saw it in Tokyo and said, can I do it in San Francisco? (laughs) So he asked asked Issei about doing it in San Francisco. And of course, he had the San Francisco Art Institute. So we said, okay. (laughs) I was like usurped again. So it went to San Francisco. And it was absolutely magnificent because the institute was in an old building then and there were niches mm-hmm. and the, the models, the mannequins would hang in these niches in one room. There was like four niches and they were all in like either body suits that Issei had done, whatever, whatever, how they were dressed, how they were, were put on the mannequin. And then we got it at Otis. And it looked great because we had the whole gallery and we had a line of mannequins from the top coming all the way down to the bottom. 
That was fantastic. But but the idea was really originated when Isi and I talked about doing a, a show like that. With all, with those shows, did you choose everything or like? Did no, you, okay. he did. He by that time it was already a you know a done deal. Yeah. They had already put the clothes together in in Tokyo. But I have a lot of his clothes. And the other person who was a great designer there, I don't know if he ever got a lot of recognition, was a German immigrant. His name was Jürgen Lail. And and at one point, I think Ise had a unit of his design studio that was like home unit. Not sure. But Jürgen did uh, bathrobes, designed the bathrobes. And designed the, the terry cloth fabric that was just beautiful. And he used to, every every season, he used to send out this little brochure that was like folded up, and there were drawings he had made of his designs, just individual drawings like this. And they were all interchangeable, always in those little flat Japanese shoes because he designed shoes too. And they were just so charming, just charming. He visited here in LA and I took him down to San Diego and to Tijuana and I, I gave him a good tour of Southern California. I know that you've also worked as a journalist as well. I wrote for Condé Nast because my friend Lloyd Ziff was the art director at Vanity Fair and then he went to House and Garden and asked me to write some stories about artistic people that we knew and Lloyd is a fantastic photographer himself and he's got a show coming up in LA, actually, at the Fetterman Gallery. And Lloyd brought me in to write, and then he would assign the photographers, and we did a story on Joe Lombardo and different, diff- some different people that he gave me the assignments for. And then when Connie Nast Traveler started, the editors at, from House and Garden thought that I would be great to help them start out here. So I was like the founding West Coast editor, founding editor of Traveler magazine. And I got them celebrities. It was basically celebrities so that they could showcase those different stories that they wanted to uh, feature. Mm-hmm. Of all of the different things that you've done, which one, what do you, do you enjoy the sort of curatorial well, or do you just sort of all see it as part of one thing? It's, it's been all part of one swirl, but what I'm enjoying now is the, the curator at Bakersfield Museum mm-hmm. of Art convinced me that I should show my collection, which I never wanted to do because I thought it was a total narcissistic event, and I didn't want to be a part of that. But she convinced me that she would have the college class in, she'd have the elementary schools in, they would do docents, they would talk about the art, they would do in-depth with the artists, because she knew many of the artists from from, um, Los Angeles and Venice. And she promised all those things, which she did. And so that's been kind of the most exciting thing happening right now, is from there it went to the Armenian Museum. And it's been great because people have been calling from different venues, asking to borrow parts of that collection or to show the whole thing. And that's been the thrill right now. How much of your collection is actually on in the show? Enough to make a museum show. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your collection must be very it's large. Bi- it's very large, but it's very intimate. Mm-hmm. It's very small. It's not like I would build a museum and put okay. these huge pieces in, because I would never do that, and I could never do that. It wasn't our style. 
our style was something more intimate and uh, friendly and really it was about friendship more than mm -hmm. anything but being so lucky that those artists were good jack said we were always so lucky to be in the right place at the right time and i think that's been the blessing of my whole life yeah or maybe you make your own place i don't know it's a good question i think it's probably a combination you know, you were in the right place at the right time, but you also took advantage of it. But maybe I couldn't do that now. I was just at a prime, one of the street artists. Actually, the first street artist who did my portrait was Shepard Ferry, mm. who is not a street artist anymore. Yeah. He does huge murals. He's a big muralist, and I put him in the realm of the, the Mexican muralists who were so great. And Shepard is a terrific guy. So there's all these street artists now, like Sleeps, and Prime and Retina, and they're starting to come off of the street and go into the galleries. Mm. So this is a big transition right now. Jim McHugh introduced me to, Jim McHugh is a, an artist, photographer, mm -hmm. introduced me to Prime. And Prime was the subject of the Getty Research Institute on street art. And he's one of the, the artists who's very well thought of and has worked in that field for a long time. So Jim suggested he do a portrait of me. So I actually <laughs> sat for Prime and he can do a representational. It's not just the alphabet all skewed like he does. He's a very good artist, even self-taught. But I think that's probably when you say you make your way, maybe that's where you would make your way with those kind of artists and then see the transition and um, follow through with them and maybe, I don't know, maybe. Would you ever do a book of your whole collection? Possible, there's a catalog, partial catalog of that, partial catalog of the portraits. It, I, I don't think I could ever write anything. I'm not, I, I just don't think you could do something like it's I, 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 mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like not me. And if somebody else did it, maybe, maybe if somebody else did it. I mean, cause it's sort of, you know, it sounds like you'd have all of these amazing things to bring into it, not just the paintings, be, but the clothes and then also the photographs, your huge, you know, all of your photographs you've taken and the invitations, you know. How big? It would be a big <laughs> tour. Yeah. Many volumes. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that's a good Netflix series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I think if someone were to put together a Netflix series based on that world, people would love it. It's, Interesting. Um, it would have to just be like an anonymous person in the middle mm -hmm. who did all of this stuff. Yeah. Do you still travel? Actually, the first trip in three years was to Boston, mm -hmm. but Florence, because of all those little communities all around it, is so great. I spent one summer as the guest of Marsha May from Dallas, and that's when Jean-Michel was there. I don't know who he was staying with, but he stayed with us some of the time, and then he was having an affair with this woman down the road who'd also rented a villa there. And Marsha would ever had a car, and she would every day we'd drive to a different little village, and Saint Gimignano mm -hmm. is that with all the towers it was so great. It was such a wonderful experience. Jean Michel was in his glory, 
because he had just modeled for Yoji and Come de Garçon in Paris. Mm -hmm. So from Paris, they drove down to meet us. And then he gave me one of his shirts, gave me a Yoji shirt that he had modeled in. And he was painting on the backyard on the grass. And he had some wonderful Japanese paper that he was using. And he was ripping, throwing coffee all over it, and ripping them into pieces, and left them all over the, the lawn to dry. And he was making collages there. And then he needed drugs, and we would drive into the central uh, square, and he would make his drug buy there at, some, at one of the churches. And um, was, that was a great, great experience. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, Marsha was a really terrific woman who lived in Dallas and New York. And her daughter and my daughter are good friends. Was she a collector as well? Or? Yes, she was. She was a collector. She influenced a lot of people in Dallas, helped them buy things. She never made herself a consultant, but she was like a great consultant. Mm. She knew all the galleries, which was something we never did. We didn't deal with the galleries as much as we dealt right with the artist. So that was a difference too. Mm -hmm. And it was more of a friendship than a commercial situation. Were you, because of the sort of world you were going in, did you become friends with some of the galleries? Like the Gagosian? Not places? so much. Not really so much. Mm -hmm. I never trusted the galleries because they were always screwing the artists over and Jack was always getting, you know, the artists out of these deals. Mm -hmm. And so we saw the other side of it. I'm not saying they do that now, but it was pretty common, you know, there was like no overseer, nobody to tell you how to run your business. There still isn't. Seems like they were very lucky to have Jack to help them, you know? I think a lot of artists don't have that, you know? No, it really makes a difference. It does make a difference, yeah. We were very lucky to have him. <laughs> he kept us out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> he really put the lid on what was going on. He was a very strong Virgo. And what are you? Pisces. Pisces. <laughs> Little Miss Wishy Washy. It's a good match. It's okay. Yeah, it is a good match. Yeah, it was good. We were really lucky with Jack keeping the lid on us mm -hmm. all the time and always encouraging us. And just before he passed, I was uh, awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, which is for immigrant families uh, doing things in the United States, but keeping their own identity. And I was so happy to tell him that we had gotten the award because he was very much in favor. He loved that. One of his friends was on the board there and another friend of his had gotten the award at one time and uh, a couple of Armenian women had gotten it and he kept saying, I think you should get it because I worked a lot with the Armenian International Women's Association and I was their UN representative for maybe 15 years. As long as I was on the California Arts Council, I was appointed by Willie Brown to be on that Arts Council. So I think all of these kind of things came into play with the Ellis Island Medal of Honor and it was such an honor. Oh, you can't believe it. Going to Ellis Island and standing there with these people who are being lauded for doing something for the United States. 
And to me, my father was born here, and my mother was born here, and I was born here, but it just brought back what your grandparents went through to come here. And it, it was a great, great thing. And I continue to work right now with uh, the Women's Support Center in Armenia that tries to combat domestic violence. They, they help the families. It's a great organization. Looking back over your life, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of my family. <laughs> I love my kids. I love my daughters. I love my granddaughters. I love the family that Jack and I built. I loved my dad and my mom a lot. I think family meant everything to us. And I love everything that we've created. We have uh, raised a boy, Manuel Perez, in our family. We put him through school. We love him. He was part of the family. And it's just been one of those situations where family meant so much to us. I was close to my master's. I never got a master's. I had so many units and I never took the time to actually put them together and find out what program I could get a master's in. Too bad. You were a teacher. Yeah, but that was just a bachelor's. <laughs> but, I was that, but, but I was thinking when I was thinking like I was going down to teach and I was still working at the law school. I was going taking night classes too. And all those things were like a part of this master's program but I never finished it. What grade were you teaching then? What grade was I teaching? First grade. Sounds like you were very busy. I just didn't get around to it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things. We went to India with Linda Banglis and Peter Alexander and stayed in a Corbu house. And we introduced the, that family in, in India was in Ahmedabad and they were big supporters of Gandhi. Mm -hmm. And Gandhi's um, cotton factories were across the road from where they had their compound. And one of the boys had married uh, an Indian woman who was a designer. And when I was in Japan, she came over and met Issei. And eventually she started working with him and doing projects for herself in Tokyo. So. You know, we were like instrumental in helping a lot of people do a lot of things. We were so happy to be staying in that house. It was fantastic. And, and learning about India and spending that time in India years ago. And Peter Alexander made me a, a bag that said, I love India. <laughs> but he had like sewn all together these pieces that came out of the, the factory, out of, out of the um, Gandhi factory. So that was a pretty exciting time too. A lot of stories like that. It's fun. Where do you live? Brooklyn. Oh, you live in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Marsha used to go to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So years ago, to a doctor that would put this little. She was very very heavy, so she was always on a diet, and he put this little <laughs> ball behind her ear, and every time she was hungry, she was supposed to rub this ball. So I used to go to Brooklyn with that was the only time I went to Brooklyn. Went to Brooklyn with her when he would put it in or take it out. Wow. Marcia was so fabulous. It though. didn't work. Nothing stopped her. <laughs> it didn't work. No, she just like, oh, there's an opening tonight for um Rauschenberg. And nobody invited us. Well, picks up the phone and goes like, you're having a dinner tonight? Yes. Well, we'll be there where it's... 
she'd just invite herself. And if Gagosian was having a dinner, she'd just call up and invite herself. But you know, who could do that? People get a, some people can get away with doing that. Mm-hmm. And it was really good. It was great. I think I was like a, like a calling card too, or she'd go like, well, I'm with Joan Quinn and she needs to come. Who just passed away? Sikulski. Carrie White used to work with Sikulski. I, I knew Sikulski. She loved him. He's Chicago, right? Wasn't he in Chicago? He was here. Was he here all the time? He was in, I mean, he was, I mean, Well, she went on location, then maybe she went on location with him in Chicago. Because I remember when I used to go to the beauty shop, and and she was another conduit hairdresser to, like, society people. And we would meet at her beauty shop on Brighton. She was a very big part of our life. We were very close to her. And one time we were in there, and we had just, Jack and I had just put a bid on a house on Palm, and we didn't get it. We were there in the court, and the court was just saying, yes, you're the only one who's put the put any money in. You've made your bid. You're the opening bid. And we were downtown, and we were, like, so excited. And this guy comes in and walks down the aisle in jeans, T-shirt, all kind of a big Afro mane. Bert Schneider, and he walks to the judge and hands him the his bid, and it outbids us, and he gets the house, and we wanted that house so badly, and so we came, the next day, I went to the beauty shop, and I was telling Carrie, you know, we didn't get the house, we were so upset, and two stalls down is Don Moran, and he's doing this woman's hair who's saying she just bought a new house and she's so excited to move into it. And it was uh, Judy, I think her name was, was Bert's wife. And they had bought it. So they're like, we're in the same beauty shop at the same time. That's, that's how serendipitous these things were at that time. I, th- I heard that they're doing a, a movie or a TV show based on her, on Carrie, I think. She had oh, just written, she wrote her memoir yeah, based on her memoir. And they've just got it. They just were going into production, and she died. Yeah. She'd been waiting a long time. And she kept calling my friend, William Escalera, who also worked at that beauty shop, Carrie White's. He's uh, the godfather to my children. He's fantastic, even to this day. We all still go to him. But he said Carrie was so stoned all the time, and when she was writing the book, she'd go like, what did we do this night when we went to such and such? When we were at the factory, who was there? And William's memory is like sharp as a tack. And he would tell her all this stuff and she'd go, oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like a good source to her. We went to the memorial together. I went with William. I just finished reading the Dennis Hopper book. I've been meaning to read that. Was it good? Pretty good. I'm like, Lots of markings on there that we know everybody that was there. <laughs> Did it feel um, correct? It felt pretty, pretty good. It's a little whitewashed, but, you know, that's their prerogative. He was great. He was one of the first interviews I did, too, for interview. So, you know, Andy was pretty in, interested in that. I did Chuck Arnaldi and Rauschenberg at the West Beach, which just closed. The West Beach was like the hangout for the guys in Venice. And then it turned into James Beach. 
and James had it till all this time and now he just closed it yesterday or today. So all of those kind of iconic places are closing and we have to keep them alive through this kind of mm -hmm. information, I think. Sort of just general Los Angeles and how it's changed, I mean. Yeah, well it's changed a lot. Because I remember we would say, well we're going to dinner at the bistro or Perino's, or Chasen's. Those were like the places. And then you'd see everybody you knew, the society people here, the Hancock Park people here, you know, Beverly Hills and Bel Air people at this one. And then if we were kind of risque and wanting to try something, we'd try a new Italian restaurant or a new hip place that was supposed to be there. But I couldn't remember what those places were because these were the mainstays. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody went to the bistro. Everyone went to Chasen's. Yeah, we don't have those anymore. We have Twin Dragon. You had a lot of good parties there. We did have a lot of good parties, and that's still there, the Twin Dragon. Remember, after one of Roche's shows, we had a party there. Billy, we always had Billy's parties there because they had a back room that was a banquet room and we could have maybe 50 people there and then bring in all this Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for all of this. Oh, thank you for coming. Thank you for researching it. You're welcome. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Joan Quinn. On the website, I've put together a slideshow, a group of her TV interviews with famous artists and designers, along with a short bio. I have many wonderful conversations coming up with models, artists, dancers, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com. <laughs>